Well, thank you all for being the great choir that sings praises to the Lord with one heart and voice and soul. That is indeed what we do when we sing. That's what we are when we come together is one voice, one heart, one soul. That's the the topic really of today's sermon. We come to this passage in Ephesians speaking of unity, unity in the church. It was introduced last week, but today Paul is going to tell us what unity is based on, what unity is is founded upon. If this is your first time to visit with us, uh, we go usually verse by verse through sections of Scripture, through books of the Bible, because God inspired it to be written that way. We want to honor that and we want to, to learn from the arguments that are being made in Scripture, from the doctrine, from the application. So we began back in September with Ephesians, and we've been making our way through this book. We sort of turned the midpoint when we started chapter 4 last week, and I said that 1 through 3 is doctrine, that 4 through 6 is application. Now there's going to be a slight footnote on that statement today, because Paul's going to talk about doctrine. But we're now moving into the second part of the book, and and the, the whole goal of expository preaching is to show you the meaning of the text, to point out some illustration that might help you with the text, and then to apply it. And of course, the Spirit, which we'll be looking at today, the Spirit takes that truth and applies it in your own life and all the dimensions that you live out on a regular basis. So if you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking just at, chapter, uh, just at verse 4 of that today, but I want to read to you verses 1 through 6. Chapter 4, 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul, a messenger, an appointed apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. And he starts in chapter 4. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit In the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Often those who promote unity in the greater church, the worldwide church, do so with little concern for sound doctrine. Doctrine is out of favor in many places and many times in Christianity. John MacArthur speaks of this when he writes, In today's politically correct and market-driven evangelical environment, emphasizing doctrinal precision is unfashionable or even considered divisive and unloving. And indeed, doctrine does divide. It, It divides, first of all, true from false. We want to know what is the true doctrine in Scripture. What does, what does the Scripture teach? That's why we're called Grace Bible Church here. What does the Bible teach? Not just what does the preacher say or the elder say or a Bible teacher say, but what does the Bible itself indicate and teach? Of course, doctrine divides. And this has often been seen as a problem. Uh, and movements have been made to try to do away with doctrine so that Christians might unite. It's like evangelicals and Catholics together. Even the Billy Graham Crusades, Promise Keepers. Even Max Lucado speaking at the Promise Keepers mentioned something to do with unity amongst all people who call themselves Christians. The emergent church movement, the seeker church movement. 
I bring those up not to attack them, but to let you know there is always an emphasis in every age to unify people apart from doctrine. And Paul here is talking about unification. He's talking about unity in the church. And he's saying we must be united upon the basic truths of Scripture, upon the basic doctrines of the faith. As we see here in today's passage, unity is founded upon unity in belief, unity in the major doctrines taught in Scripture. That great preacher Charles Spurgeon always love his quotes because they're right to the point. Fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. If you're intentionally, he says, fellowshipping with false teaching, false teachers, false churches, he says that's participation in sin. Now, I know I told you last week we were out of the doctrinal section and into the application section. But you can't fully separate the two. It's not like you can just dig out all the passages in application and put them over here in the Bible and all the doctrinal ones and put them over here. They're always mixed together. Now, Ephesians is a bit unique because we have more doctrine in the first three and more application in the second three chapters of this book. But he can't talk about unity without going back to doctrine and telling us what we're supposed to be united with. What are we supposed to be united around? What are we supposed to be united upon? So in verses 4 through 6 here, he lists seven, seven doctrines. Most scholars agree that the seven there is a number for perfection in the Bible, and it's used to show the perfection of God's doctrine. Seven major doctrines. Martin Lloyd-Jones, another great preacher, said that the unity of the church is a manifestation of the perfection of the Godhead. These seven doctrines show the perfection of the triune God, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So while you'll see seven in the list, and we'll cover the first three today, we could put it down into three based on the Trinity's relationship to the church. And that's how we're going to take it. We're going to take this in three sermons. First, today, the Spirit's work in the church. Next week, we'll look at verse 5, the Son's work in unifying and, and the doctrines we're supposed to believe about the Son. And then lastly, we'll look at the Father and His work in the church. The doctrinal foundation, we could say, is simple. It's Trinitarian Christian faith. It's Trinitarian Christian faith. It's what God has given us in Scripture to know about Him, which reveals that He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Christians, we we have to believe there's one God, creator of all things, eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're going to see that in this passage. We've already seen it in chapter 1. Just about anywhere you go in the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, it is more hidden. We see it explicit, though, here in the New Testament. So let's look at these seven doctrines and the three parts that I mentioned. And today, let's look specifically at how the Spirit works in the church. That's just verse 4. Now, he finished off, you see, verse 3 by talking about the Holy Spirit. He said, we've got to be diligent. We've got to be eager. We've got to work at preserving unity in the church. And it's unity that the Spirit has given us. And he's bound us together, almost chained us together in a good sense. He's tied us together in the church, in the Spirit, and we're bound together in unity. And now he starts off in verse 4, which is really a continuation of the sentence in the original language in Greek. But our translations translations help us by putting a period at the end of 3 and starting 4. There is one body and one spirit, 
just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. So the first thing mentioned here, number one, the true and genuine church. That's the first thing that should unify us, Paul says. We ought to be unified around and because of the fact that there's one body. There's one true church. One true church. That's the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the body. We are the body. He controls the body. We submit to him. And not just Grace Bible Church. We're not just talking about one specific church, the church in Ephesus or the church here in Bernie. No, he's saying all true churches in the world make up this body. All Christians, even Christians who've gone on to glory are part of this universal church. When we talk about the church, we need to think of two different categories. One is the universal church. All Christians since Pentecost, until Christ returns, all Christians make up the church. Some have gone on to glory. That's the universal church. But who's he writing to? He's writing to the Ephesians. He's writing to a specific church. So these commands that apply to the universal church are expressed in the local church. The local church. The universal church is is expressed in each area by a local church. There's one body of Christ, but in each area where there's a local church, that body is expressed. So we can refer to this as a church, or we can refer to the worldwide genuine true church. He's writing to the Ephesians. He wants them to understand. He wants us in this church to understand that there is one body. What does he mean by that? Well, I said it's the true and genuine church. Well, true means it actually meets the biblical definition of a local church. We looked briefly at this in the last sermon. What is a biblical church? That's a question you should always ask. No matter where you move, no matter what church you're looking at, what is a biblical church? Well, first of all, the church has to have Spirit-indwelled believers. The church is not a building, and it's not believers mixed with unbelievers. Now, sometimes you'll have that, and you don't know that that's the case. Sometimes people profess falsely. Sometimes people will go for some time and then turn away from the Lord, showing that they're not genuinely saved. The true church, the one that is the body of Christ, is a group of Spirit-indwelled believers, and they meet regularly in one locality. We're talking about the local church here. Of course, you have to meet regularly. The church is in a building, but it is the people that gather together regularly. And that church has to do certain things. The word must be purely preached. The ordinances are observed. And church discipline is exercised. We've gone through some of these in classes on ecclesiology, and there are scriptures to support each one. But again, it's a group of spirit and dwell believers who meet regularly where the word is preached. The ordinances, that's baptism and the Lord's Supper, are observed as the Lord commanded, and church discipline is exercised. That's what makes a true church. So you have to always ask yourself, am I in a true church? I've had to ask myself that in the past. When we planted this church, we need to make sure these things are happening in a church. What does it mean to be genuine? We're one body, Paul says, and he's teaching all throughout his writings and all throughout the New Testament, and we we look and see what is a true church and genuine church. Genuine means actually having the reputed or apparent qualities or character. What's the character of a church described as in the Bible? What's the quality? It's not as if the Bible says A plus, you got your A plus churches and your A minus churches and your B's and C's and on down. But the Bible does give us different passages that tell us what the church should look like, what the church should be doing when they meet together. 
the one body, the church, does what Scripture calls it to do. Here's a list. There there are probably more that you could add, but I'll just give you a running list. Meeting together. Hebrews 10.25. We must meet together regularly. That's what the church should look like. If you went to a church and visited and they didn't meet again for six months, that's not a church. That's just a, a meeting, an evangelistic meeting maybe, a Bible study. You've got to meet together regularly on the Lord's Day. Again, Hebrews 10, 24. We meet together to stir one another up to love and good works. That's what the one body is about. That's our character. We must encourage one another. Why are we meeting together? Why are we stirring one another up? To encourage one another for godliness, for growth for Christ-likeness. We need other believers, in other words, to tell us when we mess up, to correct us when we sin, and just to pray for us and encourage us. Also, equipping believers by feeding them God's Word. The apostles did that when the church started in Acts 2. Paul mentions that in 1 Timothy 4 when he says, preach the Word in season and out of season. That's the character of the church. It's not just one of the marks of a true church, but a genuine church always ought to have the word present. And it's Bible studies. It should be about the Bible. And the preaching should be about the Bible, from the Bible. All the church should be doing should encompass these things. Also, worshiping and praising God. That's what we've been doing here today, worshiping and praising God. A genuine church worships God, and they praise Him. They don't just get together for fellowship. They don't just get together to say, we're a church. This is a good social club. We're all Christians. We're worshiping God. Not only are we growing in the faith, but we're worshiping God. Also, protecting members under the shepherding and oversight of godly leaders. We'll cover much of this in our new members class this afternoon for those of you who are there. But Acts 20, Paul warns the elders in Ephesus. He tells them, watch out. Wolves are going to come in. They're going to sneak in among you. You need to shepherd the flock of God, he tells those elders. You need to guard the flock. Watch out for wolves. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they have a shepherding office over you. 1 Peter 5, same thing. Shepherds guard the flock. They help you watch out for false teachers. They help you maintain the purity of the church. And then the last one I'll list is, Provide believers with opportunities to serve one another. There ought to be opportunities. This isn't a show. This isn't where you hire just a few people to do all the work. There's opportunities to serve. And the church is about that. Using your spiritual gifts. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. So a true church meets the marks of a true church. A genuine church is, is characterized by these things I listed. And Paul says there's one body. That's what it should look like based on other passages. And there's one body and we ought to be unified. If we're doing those things, I think we will be unified. If we're obeying what the Bible tells us, we will be unified. But notice of all these seven, he starts with the church. He starts with the church. Why? Because that's the topic he's been looking at. He's concerned about unity in the church. It's not as if the Ephesians are a mess like Corinth when he writes to the Corinthians or the Galatians who have really taken in some false teaching. But he's always concerned about the churches he planted being unified. We ought to be thankful that he is concerned because it's recorded in Scripture how we can be unified. This is a a common theme, though, that we see throughout Paul's letters. Go to Romans 12. Go back in your Bibles a bit. Hold your spot there in Ephesians. Go to Romans 12, 4. Church in Rome, he wrote a long letter to them, contains much doctrine, much teaching. 
Now in chapter 12, he turns the corner and begins to apply what he's been teaching them. Chapter 12 of Romans verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So we're individually each members of this thing called the body. Your individuality doesn't go away. Your individual gifts don't disappear when you join the body. But you are connected, realize, he says, to a body. And we're all connected to one another in this way. Now go forward to 1 Corinthians. It'll be your next book here in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now the Corinthians are a mess. They're fighting over everything. Not the least the spiritual gifts. So in 12 through 14, he talks to them. He teaches them on spiritual gifts. But he starts off talking about how we're all part of one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one, yet it has many members. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So he says, look, I know you're a lot. I know you're many. But realize you're one as well. So also is Christ. For by one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, one Holy Spirit, one Christ, and we're all put in one body of Christ. And the Spirit baptizes us into that body. Remember that passage for later. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Go forward to verse 20. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 20. But now there are many members, but one body. So he just keeps reinforcing this. Now go forward to Colossians 3.15, past Ephesians, past Philippians, to Colossians 3.15. Again, he's concerned about unity in the church. He says to the Colossians, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in you. If Christ rules in you, you will be unified. You will be one body. You will be together. So his point to the Ephesians is stay unified. And his point to us today, God's reason for putting this in Scripture is that his church would be unified. Don't split off and form a false body, Paul says. Don't be influenced by heretical teaching and think that you need to split the church over some heresy or even just an error. Maybe it's not a heresy that leads to hell, but maybe just an error in teaching. Don't wander off from the body like a lost sheep, he's saying. There's one body. And if you wander off, it's like you cut off the hand and watched it walk away. That's monstrous. That's gross. It doesn't work with the analogy of a human body. And it shouldn't be like that in the church. Does does a foot separate itself from the body? Does the arm suddenly think it's come up with something new and disobeys the brain and does what it wants? We're one body in Christ. We obey our head. That is Christ. He's given us all the things we need in Scripture to glorify Him, to honor Him. These things should not be when people wander off from a true church or take a doctrinal teaching that's heretical against Scripture and create something new out of it. Well, how can we hate one another for one body? How can we hate each other for one body? You just, you just heard in John 13 about how we're to love one another. That's actually one of the marks of being a Christian, is the loving one another. Just go forward in Ephesians to Ephesians 5. Later, Paul's going to be talking about husband and wife. And he's going to tell the husbands in 529 to love their wives. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. We're members of Christ's body. He takes care of us. We should take care of the other members in the body. We should love one another. How can you hate your own body? This is your body. If you're a member here, this is your body. How can you hate one of your own body? Well, that's Paul's call for us to be unified because we are one body. Also, secondly, we must be unified around the person and work of the Holy Spirit. There's not only one body, he says, but there's also one spirit. There's not multiple spirits. As regards to God's spirit, there's only one. He's touching just just in brief here on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Pneumatology is the technical term for the study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I wanted to just take these doctrines and open them up for you. Because remember, Paul spent three years with the Ephesians. And he taught them. In a seminary-like environment, he taught these believers for three years before he left. And now he's writing this letter back, reminding them of certain things a few years later. So let's consider what the New Testament teaches about the Holy Spirit. Let's look at pneumatology. If we're going to be united around one spirit, we need to know this spirit. We need to know who is the Holy Spirit. What does he do? What's his ministry to the church? First of all, you need to know that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Acts 5.3. Speaking of the Holy Spirit's deity, Peter says in Acts 5.3, remember this is when Ananias and Sapphira went out and sold the property and, and they lied about it. And Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You're lying to the Holy Spirit. Then the next verse, he says, you've not lied to men, but to God. You see what he's doing there? He's equating the Holy Spirit with God. You lied to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is God. But there's three persons in the Godhead. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. We see that here in this passage. Verse 4 says spirit. There's one spirit. Verse 5 says there's one Lord. Verse 6 says there's one Father. Three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They each have personality. But there is one God. The Father's not the Son. The Son's not the Father. Neither one of them are the Spirit. Three persons, one God. The best proof text for that is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, one name. It's singular. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three names. But he said one name, and then he gives three names. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes. Because our triune God, our Trinitarian God is three in one. So we can't be unified with people who don't agree with the fact the Holy Spirit is God and there are three in one, three persons in the Godhead. There are some who deny those facts and you shouldn't call them brothers and sisters in Christ. You shouldn't have fellowship with them as if we're one body. Now you might evangelize them. You might talk to them. You might have a work environment with them. They might be in your extended family. They're not brothers and sisters in Christ because Paul says there's one spirit. And he goes on to define in other places, and the Bible does, who the spirit is. Who denies the Holy Spirit is God? Who denies the Trinity? Jehovah's Witnesses? Mormons? 
United Pentecostals, most prominently T.D. Jakes, United Pentecostal. They would say that the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of God. So you have the Father who changes into the Son, who changes into the Spirit, but you never have all three existing at the same time. There's modes, there's manifestations. Christadelphians are another group that denies the Trinity. All these deny the Trinity. They deny the deity of the Holy Spirit. Also, the person of the Spirit, you need to know something about gender because that is such a big issue today. People are calling God she. They're calling God mother instead of father. And the Holy Spirit often receives some of that as well. I'll just read to you John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Two places in John 14, Jesus mentions the Spirit. He refers to him in a masculine sense, with a masculine pronoun. Now, he's a spirit, so we don't think of body parts, but he is referred to in a masculine pronoun, so we should also follow that and say the Holy Spirit is he. Well, that's the person of the Spirit. Anytime you talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you want to look at the person, who they are, and what they do, the work that they've done. All those are in Scripture. So the person, he is God, is the third person of the Trinity, referred to with a masculine pronoun. What are the ministries of the Holy Spirit, though, in the church? How does he work in the world and specifically for the church? And we can't list these all. There's 27. If you pick up the biblical doctrine book, the big white textbook over here from the Master's Seminary, you'll see 27 listed. We're not going to go through 27. I'm just going to mention the seven major ones, seven major ones that the Holy Spirit does in the believer and in the church. And these are going to be quick. A whole sermon could be dedicated to each one of these. But Paul's already mentioned them in Ephesians, or he'll get to them by the end. In salvation, what does the Spirit do? At the moment you're justified, at the moment you're saved, at the moment you're united with Christ, what does the Spirit do? He regenerates. Paul described this in Ephesians 2.5. He didn't mention regeneration by name, but he described what it is. Ephesians 2.5, if you look at it, even when we were dead in our transgressions, we were dead, we could do nothing, there was no hope, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What is regeneration? It's making alive. That's what the word genesis means. Alive, birth, and then regeneration. Making alive again. We thought we were alive but we were actually dead in our sins. God comes and he makes us alive again. The Holy Spirit gives us a new heart. He takes out the heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. We can believe. We desire to believe. We want to believe because we have a new heart. We have a new spiritual outlook. We've been born again, Jesus says in John 3. You must be born again to even see the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit does that. The moment we're saved, it's because he's regenerated us so we can believe. Also, he baptizes us. The Holy Spirit baptizes us. Every true believer is baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Now, baptism means plunge. It means immerse. The Holy Spirit doesn't take us and dunk us in water. 
The Holy Spirit puts us, plunges us, immerses us into the body of Christ. We're not in the body of Christ. The moment we're saved, He takes us, He puts us into the body of Christ. We're united with Christ. We're in His body, the church. There's a lot of wrong teaching out there on baptism of the Spirit. There is spirit baptism, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. But most of the other passages in the Bible speak of water baptism. This is an outward sign of what the Spirit has already done in you. So when someone gets baptized, which Lord willing we're going to have here in a few weeks before the fellowship meal, right out here in our baptismal tank. You probably missed it coming in because it's going to be in the parking lot. They haven't put it out yet. But when we do that, that's an outward sign. That's a testimony of what God has already done in your heart. The fact that you've been put into the body of Christ, that's now proclaimed at water baptism. Others say that Holy Spirit baptism is speaking in tongues. Others have different views, different interpretations, but the Bible says it's when he takes us and puts us in the body of Christ. Also, sealing. The third major work that the Holy Spirit does at the moment of salvation is he seals you. If you're in Christ, you've been sealed. Not just by the Spirit, but with the Spirit. The Spirit in you is a seal. It is a guarantee. It is a promise. Paul's already taught us about this. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 13. So later when he says one spirit, he wants his readers to not only think about what he taught those three years he was there, but also what he's already written. One thirteen in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's given as a pledge, as a pledge of our inheritance, of all the good things to come, as a down payment, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Christ is coming back. He's going to physically redeem His people. Spiritually, we've been redeemed the moment you trusted in Christ, but we're going to get new bodies, and He's going to redeem the whole earth. Everything will be remade. And His people, those who've been saved, those who've been justified in Him, will get a new body, and they'll get to run upon the earth and enjoy time with Christ. But until then... People might think they can lose their salvation. They might think, what if I sin tomorrow? What if I really sin next week? The Bible says you're sealed. That doesn't give you license to go and do what you want. But it says you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. If you're truly in Christ, who's going to take you out of Christ? You're in Christ, you're put there by the Spirit, and you're sealed by the Spirit. Who's in you? That's the whole point of the end of Romans 8. Who can take you out of Christ? No one. You've been sealed. That's the moment of salvation. If we, if we go on in the Christian life and we start thinking about the ongoing growth in holiness, what's called sanctification, what's the work that the Spirit's doing? He, he does certain things right when we're saved. Those are one-time events. We're regenerated. We're baptized into the body and we're sealed. But there are ongoing ministries as we're being sanctified. Firstly, there is indwelling indwelling. Again, Paul spoke of this already in the letter. Go to chapter 2, verse 22. He goes on to say, in whom also you're being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We're in Christ. Christ is the chief cornerstone of this great building. He's using an analogy. And we're being built. The church is being built. Each one of us are bricks in the building. And it's to be a dwelling of God in the Spirit. 
In 1 Corinthians, he says, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit indwells every believer permanently, permanently from the moment of salvation, and it continues on, so you go to be with Christ. The Spirit is within you. That's what indwelling means. He lives there. Now, God can't live in one place. God the Spirit is everywhere at once, all the time. And each believer, he can be within each person, each person who's in Christ. He dwells in us. He helps us to live holy lives. But we have to realize, we have to realize that we can't think that we're never going to sin because the Spirit lives in us. We're not perfect. 1 John 1 says that if you go and say you never sin, then the truth's not even in you. We have the Spirit in us, but we can still choose to sin. We can still stumble. We can still fall. Not permanently. God's not going to send us to hell if we've been justified. But we can stumble. And He will discipline us. But the Spirit lives in us, even though we'll never completely be rid of sin until glory. Another thing that's often confused that the Spirit does, He fills us. Ongoing filling. Now certainly, The Spirit comes to dwell in us right away at the moment of salvation. But the Bible speaks of this idea that the Spirit can fill you at certain times and not at others. Filling is the Holy Spirit's control of the total life of the Christian. It is ongoing, and a believer can be more or less filled with the Spirit. The Spirit's never going to leave you permanently, but you can be more or less filled with with the Spirit. That's hard for us to conceptualize, but we're speaking of the spiritual realm here. We're speaking of God. And we can be more or less filled with the Spirit depending on our own pursuit of sanctification. Again, go back to chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So we've been put in Christ. Then later, he'll go on at the end of chapter 3. He's going to pray that Christ would dwell in us. That we might know the love of Christ in 3.19. Go back to 3.17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Wasn't Christ already in our hearts? Yes. But there is an up and down of the Christian life as we sin. The Spirit might fill us more or less. We go forward to Ephesians 5. This is the one Spirit that we're talking about. We've got to love God's teaching here. 5.19. Start with 18, 518. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't they already have the Spirit? Yeah, the Spirit lives in them. But they can be filled with the Spirit. Again, this is not some sort of crazy, erratic behavior. He's saying be filled with the Spirit. Now he goes on to describe what that is. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. One of the ways you can be filled with the Spirit is gathering together to worship. But the opposite of that, he says, is getting drunk with wine. You're filling yourself with alcohol. And you're not filling yourself with the Spirit. And it's passive. We can't actively grab the Spirit and fill us. We passively do it by obeying the Lord and resisting sin. The Spirit continues to work more and more through us. Two more I'll give you for sanctification. So we have indwelling already. We have filling fruit. Galatians 5. I'll refer you there. Fruit of the Spirit. A group of spiritual virtues produced by the Spirit in a believer. Love, joy, peace, patience. Galatians 5. These are the things that a person who has the Spirit will show. And then lastly, a spiritual gift or gifts for service. 
for edification of the church. We'll come to that next week. We'll talk about some of these gifts as we move in. Actually, it won't be next week. It'll be in about a month when we come to the next few verses. But there are many gifts mentioned in the Bible, and the whole purpose of them is for edification, for the building up of the church. The Spirit gives those gifts and oversees the use of those gifts. So we all hold these doctrines true here at our church, and and every member is unified around these truths. Maybe we don't all know them to the extent that I laid them out, but we agree that there's one Spirit. We agree that He is God. We agree that there's three persons in the Godhead, and the Spirit is the third person. And we're unified around that. It's because the Spirit's working in each one of us that we can be unified. Philippians 2, Paul says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete, he says, by being the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He gives this list of ifs, and in there is the Holy Spirit. If there's a Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in your fellowship, you should be united, he says. Well, what about when there's differences? What about when there's differences with denominations, with theology? Are those our brothers and sisters in Christ? Why is there ever any disagreement amongst Christians if we all have one spirit? Well, the reason is we're all being sanctified at different rates. God in his sovereignty is sanctifying people at different rates, and we resist or don't resist at different rates, different speeds. Not everyone's growing at the same speed. Not everyone has the same opportunities to grow. Not everyone is being sanctified at the same rate. So there are errors. There are people wandering off from some of these things. And we have to ask, are they, are they teaching heresy? Or are they just mistaken? Are they joining up with a church that is completely false? Or does the church just lack good leadership and they don't know the Bible? So we want to be charitable. And we want to ask, does someone really understand the Holy Spirit? Have they ever been taught? Are they denying any of the essentials? That's important when we're asking about the unity of all Christians. Well, let's move on to the, to the last one here. We have a common, number three, a common destination. There's one body, there's one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one hope. There's one hope. We're considering here the calling. We looked at a bit at that last week. What is the calling? Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You learned all this doctrine, now walk according to the calling that God has called you. What does he mean by that? Well, it's the same one that he's mentioned back in chapter 1. Chapter 2, it's the divine summons of God the Father upon the heart to believe. It's when God directly summons your heart to believe. There's an external call, that's the preaching of the gospel. That's what you hear with your ears. But some... Some get the call directly from God to their heart so that they can believe. Remember what Jesus said? Many are called externally, but few are chosen. Many are called, many hear the gospel, but few receive the divine summons of God the Father. The effectual call, the irresistible grace. Romans 8.30, Paul says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Talking there about the divine calling of God. It's also the same time the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart. And so Paul's saying there's, there's only one hope of your calling. You've been called by God the Father towards one 
This isn't, I hope I make it. This isn't, oh, if I just do enough good stuff, maybe I'll make it. If my good, I hear this all the time from unbelievers, if my good outweighs my bad, I'll make it. I hope I'll make it. Maybe I'll make it. No, that's not the way hope is used in the New Testament. It's a certainty. It's a certainty. It's a future hope to be with Christ in glory. Let's just look real quickly at how he's already used this in 112. In 112, Ephesians 112, Paul says, To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So there's a hope in Christ. 118. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory, the glory of his inheritance? There's an inheritance laid out for us. And we look towards that hope. God's called us in the past. If you're a believer, he's called you. And we're to look forward to the one hope. Also in 2.12. 2.12, he mentions this again. And he says, remember that you who were at that time separate from Christ, before we were saved, we were like pagan Gentiles separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The world has no hope. Pagans have no hope. People who don't follow Christ have no hope. Those who have not been justified by faith alone and Christ alone, they don't have any hope. We have a hope if you're in Christ. We have a hope that we should be looking forward to. It's the reason God called us, not because of our own works, but because of his grace. And he says, look forward to this hope. What is the hope? Well, the one hope he's talking about is that the believer in Christ, who is going to be saved from eternal damnation, will be resurrected to life, will be resurrected to eternal glory, forever and ever with God. That's our hope. All Christians should be able, no matter what kind of different views are out there on the end times, this is an essential doctrine that all Christians should be able to agree with. That believers will be resurrected to life, unbelievers resurrected to eternal judgment. Our hope is not to the judgment. Our certainty of our future is to the resurrection of life with Christ forever when he returns. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Look how Paul puts all this together we've been talking about on the Spirit and calling and hope. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's one hope. There's one hope. It comes to the gospel. It comes from Christ's work on the cross and the person that Christ is, the fact that he is God and obeyed perfectly the law when he lived out his time on the earth. It comes to the Spirit working in us. And Paul says there's only one hope. That's something to be unified around, which means there's not multiple hopes. That would be disunity. That would be division. There's not different paths to get to heaven, in other words. There's not more than one hope. It's only one. There's no other way. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one Lord, one faith, one spirit, one Father, one hope. 
No one can earn it. No one can work towards it. You can't get there through Mary. You can't get there through Muhammad. You can't get there through your father. You can't get there through your mother. There's not a hope through the pastor that he might save you. One hope through Christ, by the Spirit, to the glory of the Father. Now hope is something that's certain. We can confidently look forward to seeing Christ someday. We should be unified around that. These are basics of the faith here. These are some of the things we're going to cover in our new members class. Now it's going to be a little bit shorter because I've already covered some of these. But these are essentials. These are what we ask every member to agree to. Not every little detail of everything in Scripture. There might be various views on that. But these are essentials. There's only one spirit. There's only one body. There's only one hope. We do believe here at our church that we're not the only true church. We do believe in the spiritual unity of all true born-again believers. I believe there are other true churches in this area, in San Antonio. There's a lot of bad teaching out there. There's a lot of false teaching. But there are a lot of good churches. God will preserve His church. There will always be a remnant. He will preserve His church. But for this body, we have to make sure that we are unified around these core doctrines. We can't play with these. We can't sort of improve upon them. We can't think we've found something new regarding the church or the Holy Spirit or the one hope. We've got to be unified around them. We've got to come together, love one another, and remind one another of these truths. Can anybody say amen to that? All right. Lord, we do thank you for teaching us in your scriptures exactly what we're supposed to do when it comes to praising you when it comes to glorifying your name. We're thankful that you have taught us throughout all of Scripture about who you are and what you've done. And we pray, Lord, that even though we are many members, that we might be one body, that you might hold us fast until the end as one unified body. We trust that you will do this. We will do it for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.